0: You know, Trumpism, you know it is infectious when it reaches the studios of s a f M and Brafinia saying, one, songezo, the artist, is Beyonce, and her husband is my friend. Those are the words, open close quote, of Frenia Sintoba, the technical producer of the show. Suppose humor is always a good thing to start and kick off work, and that certainly proved A comical moment on this, the 6th of July, 2021. Hey, Kanya. Kanya's in the background there. Once you leave here, something just keeps bringing you back. We're happy to be here. 2012, Lesejo is also in studio and I'm here. The original of The Viewpoint is here for a fleeting moment, of course. This evening, being Tuesday, is the hashtag Tuesday takeover. And our guest this evening is Miss Gabriela Faba, who's an independent political analyst. I read very very shortly her biography before we are in conversation with her. Gabriella is a Jewish activist and ANC deployee in the WITS SRC 2021 committee as a legal officer. She sits on the national committee of the ANC Women's League Women's Desk, particularly in the health subcommittee. Gabby went to Yeshiva College, a religious Jewish-only girls' high school, and then went on to the Women's Seminary in the old city of Jerusalem to study Jewish religious text. When she arrived at Wits University, it was her first exposure to people outside of her Jewish community. It was her first time meeting and interacting with black people in her country. She then entered into the political space and with the hope to change stereotypes and shift the paradigm of the black and white person in South Africa. After two years of work, she was elected to the SRC at WITS as legal officer. Gabriella strives for intersectional leadership, whereby women are empowered in all religious, political, academic, and social spaces. We engage her on a number of issues this evening, including her leadership in and out of her comfort zones, black and white youth, university politics, mental health, religion, among many others that you would anticipate and expect of a politician to be conversant with. Gabriella, good evening. Thanks for joining us
1: evening and thank you so so much um for for giving me this opportunity i'm really really excited to engage with you
0: i am too but i've got to ask this question because this mix of past practices that i thought would have been done away with in this generation i I mentioned the fact that it was your first time interacting with african people when you went to Vitz university give or take you are about 18 19 maybe 20 at that stage how really true is that
1: well i think for me interacting is takes a more deeper meaning um because and maybe interacting is the wrong word because i obviously you interact um with i've interacted with black people when it came to cashiers and people on the side of the street um and my domestic workers and but I think that in itself was one of the biggest problems Mm. that I never had a conversation with a black person for longer than five minutes and a personal conversation um, besides with my domestic workers. And for me, I think that is the most crazy, crazy thing, living in a democracy post-apartheid 27 years later, that that is a situation of, of most people. And I can say openly that that's the situation of many people, many of my friends, um, many white people. And I think even um, I've spoken to, to my black friends that we would go around and you just, everyone stepping on, feels like we like, have to walk around on eggshells. And there's never, mm-hmm. while there's interaction, there's never engagement. And, and that's where I found so sad and something that I really decided once I, I leave school, like, I'm going to change. I can't handle this anymore because I don't want to live in a country knowing that I'm not really living in the country and interacting with the people of the country White people are the minority in South Africa. So how can it be that you living in a country and not interacting with the majority of this country? And I think before I started getting into this political space, I always was brought up saying, you know, you black people and white people, we all equal. Um, we mustn't see colour. You know, why you can't call someone black. You can't call someone white. And what many of the comrades taught me in, in the political space was you have to see colour, you know. But that colour can never be that it makes each other unequal. That colour is the beauty of being a rainbow nation. We don't want everyone to be the same. We all come from different backgrounds, different heritages, different cultures, and it's about not losing those cultures, those heritages, those values, those identities when we interact. Because you see very much um, in, in, I think, it very much adverts you have this thing of people wanting to be each other. So maybe it could be to an extent of a, a white person wanting to be more so-called in a socio in a social way more more black, and a black person wanting to be more white. And it's about us not losing that. Rather, saying, This is who I am. I'm Gabriella Fava. I came from very secluded, um, naive backgrounds and, and growing up, but I'm here now and I want to change. I want to interact, and please will you let me do that? And that's been the beauty of the experience of my life in the past three years that people have accepted me for who I am and taught me things that I would have never known if I just continued with the trajectory that my life was going
0: to what would you attribute that cocooned environment that has come to characterize the better part of your life until the epiphanies that you experienced especially when you enrolled at wits university is it home is it the culture to which you subscribe and or religion Or is it just the common case, which I would imagine is the common case for many in that regard, then white South African or the minority parts or the minority communities of South Africa, to just be indifferent to certain things, which for so long as they don't affect them a particular way, so then they move on with life. I'll tell you why I even asked this question. Two decades ago in my high school, my then deputy headmaster told me that the first time he had encountered, if you like, What was actually going on in this country is when he was in the United Kingdom and it so happened to coincide with June 76 when he saw for the first time what was actually happening in the country and he got an exposure, if you will, to the political reality of the majority of the people. I didn't want to believe that. In fact, I didn't believe it. And to the extent that I did believe it, I just thought it was tragic, tragic on his part for one to be as ignorant as one could have been under those circumstances? Or could it really be a function of the society that allows one to live such a parallel life to the life of the majority of the country who then constitute the country, more particularly when the dynamics between the minority and the majority are so skewed as they continue to be to this day? How would you then reconcile what had come to characterise the first 18 years of your life, being not exposed to the country?
1: I think it's very much, um, you know, the othering, where, you know, a white person defines a black person and a black person defines a white person. And it's always the other. And I think there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of stereotypes and there's a lot of misconceptions about people. Um, and as soon as, and the only way that I've seen that, you, you know, it, it is, there's, it's it's definitely an environment and a culture of South Africa because it, it's so much seen. I feel like sometimes I think my life's Hannah Montana. You know, I have my all my black friends and politics and that in life and then all my white friends and that life. And... For me, it's so sad to see that it's so hard to fuse them together because no one wants to acknowledge these hard questions and these hard hard things that we need to ex- accept and look into ourselves, that apartheid is continuing. Apartheid did not end 27 years ago. We are currently, we might not have the laws and the legislation of the apartheid rule, but socially, socially, There is separation between black and white people. There is inequalities between black and white people. Black people face violence into this country. And Mm -hmm. no one wants to accept that because we always want to be this rainbow nation, this beautiful Nelson Mandela children to the country about reconciliation. How many people in this country have even reconciled with one another? If we can even mention one, it would be a great success. But no one wants to admit those truths. No one wants to have those hard conversations. Until, for me, I got fed up. And I kind of had a a, a feeling, because I'd spent two years in Israel, I said, either I'm going to continue living here, um, that's, or go to Israel and go and immigrate. And if I'm going to live here, I want to live here properly. I don't want to live in this picket fence behind big walls and barbed wires and not engage and not be in touch with our country. Because then what? I'm not living here. I'm just placed here.
0: Interesting. I do want to engage this because I do have... One or two questions, but I'm sure the listeners at home would want to engage. Johannesburg, 714-2006, Gabriella Faber, independent political analyst, a member of the University of the Witwatersrand SRC, particularly legal officer there. She speaks of her Damascus moment, and I'm about to engage her very deeply on that. But, of course, feel free to interrupt me by either calling us on the line that I've just given you, and you know the rules in that regard, or drop us a WhatsApp voice note, 0614-104-107. Gabby, let's talk about this Damascus moment. It obviously coincided with your going to Israel, Jerusalem in particular. What was it about that trip being out of the South African environment and context altogether that made you almost come to the either-or situation? Either stay here and never return to South Africa, if I understand what you've just said correctly, or you go back, as it were, And live properly are your words as opposed to being placed there. What specifically proved to be the turning point? And i ask this in context. Perhaps I should ask two questions in one of these reports and the national question that is now facing Israel stroke Palestine and it attracting the term apartheid Israel. Talk to us about these experiences and these terms that I've referred to, which perhaps might embody better your experience and, if you will open, close quote, your homecoming.
1: I think um, for me it was, I lived in the old city um, and I studied religious text uh, for the whole day. And um, for me, I never really did about, you know, I think being in the political space, I get asked about, politics about Israel, Israel never for me really was something political, it was my religious homeland, just, you know, like how Christians followed the land and their natural land. Um, and I kind of saw when I went there, it would often be that people, uh, you know, these, I um, was actually very much an American and in the institution people come all over the world to study religious texts. And people would always be like, why don't you, why would you live in South Africa? You guys you live behind Bob's wire. They can't believe that we don't walk on our, like I can't walk around in my own country. I don't walk to the streets. Um, you know, if I walk, it's with a, it, there has to be security. Um, I, in my neighborhood, there's security at every corner. I personally have been, um, my house has been invaded with guns to my our heads. And people in Israel were like, why would you live there where you can easily come to Israel? And I didn't really know. I couldn't really answer the question. And then I came to VIT. Um, And I remember being there at, it was the first, my first day, and my first lecture, and the ANC came and they started protesting. And I saw that there were a lot of. Um, I was very confused in the beginning. I was very scared, and we, what very much noticed over the next few days was all the white students would quickly run out the the university, and then eventually, what would happen is it became like so normal. You just as the white kids, you take your books, you get up, and you pretend that nothing's going on, and then I asked the people protesting what actually are you protesting for and about? And they said, um, free tertiary education. Um, And I decided to get involved in this cause. And this was, I guess, my Damascus moment where I realized I am, from going from Israel, where I learned my Jewish beliefs, we are children of God. And we have a mission um, as God's children to fix the, the brokenness in the world, and South Africa is in my play, in my opinion, shattered. And I don't want to be that other white person who just walks past something that's happening. You know, when we look at the apartheid, anti-apartheid, and all those white people who who participated. You know, I, when my children ask me, "What did you do to change this country?" I want to be able to answer them and not say that I wrote a Facebook tweet, Black Lives Matter, that I gave money or to a beggar on the side of the road. We have a duty in this country to contribute to the African project. And if someone wants to just sit back, like most of our country does, and complain, then they must leave. And I had to realize either I'm going to continue complaining about our government, complaining about the country, complaining that I can't even walk the streets, or I can start a new life and a new direction of change and transformation.
0: The first question that you posed that was posed to you by your fellow Jewish people in Israel as to why you'd go back to South Africa, first of all, you can tell them South Africa is 100 times bigger than the Kruger National Park because I know the state of Israel fits (laughs) quite comfortably in the Kruger National Park. Number one. Number two, the diversity of the people. And frankly, when I was there and looking at the security personnel and law enforcement, one would swear I was in the middle of a war zone. And this is traversing territories between Ramallah, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and a couple of the old city, including going up to the Golan Heights. I absolutely knew what was going on politically there, and I wouldn't have been surprised if there was a time where the tour would have been cut short. Because in the lead up to the tour that I was undertaking there at the time, we were constantly told we're waiting for the ceasefire, we're waiting for the ceasefire, and best believe that if anything should change, we will have to make arrangements to get us out of there for obvious political reasons, which are many who are listening to the show probably would get. But I think. I mean, that is just tongue-in-cheek insofar as it recalls that South Africa is an infinitely more beautiful country than Israel. But you mentioned something which struck me, and that is we you want to build the African Project. And I'm inviting the listeners as well to participate in this dialogue. Tell us, what do you mean by the African Project? What is that? What does it mean to you anyway?
1: I think for me it's about finding African solutions to African problems. Um, it's about looking and realizing that there's so much Western ideology amongst us. And I think that's a huge reason why we aren't sol- solving our problems, because we're taking Western ideas and putting in them into an African country. And in doing so, we're losing our heritage. We're losing what all the beautiful things. You know, for me, something small, even how this vaccination process hasn't incorporated traditional healers. You know how the with COVID, they, the country said go onto lockdown and isolate yourself in your homes. Not taking into cognizance that in South Africa, many people are living in homes that are, cannot be called homes; they like shacks with five people in a room. And those are just small practical things. But it's about envisioning a country yeah. that is goes back to its identity pre-colonization, pre-apartheid and we that declare ourselves as not just something airy fairy and not just something about reconciliation, but an African country where people are proud of who they are, proud about who they want to be, even something small for me how at university a lot of my friends can't wear their traditional clothes because they would be told that you are nude. you know if, if this is the leading African university, why is it that you're not allowed to wear traditional clothes? Why is it when we study that there's not enough importance on, on Africa and African studies?
0: I'm gonna ask one final question before I either let the listeners participate or we move straight on to your conversation with the guest that you have so chosen. What has been the response from those whose opinions matter to you, whose opinions of you matter to you, be it to your friends? I'm talking about genuine friends now, not just some idiot who calls oneself your friend simply because they went to the same school as you. I'm talking about your parents and your extended family, your religious circles that you've grown in and into and under who have formed your worldly view, as it were what has their response been to you almost becoming radical and or radicalized by the circumstance of 21st century South Africa?
1: Um, I think in the beginning, people were like, Kabi, what are you doing? No one's done this before. um, You're just going to make a fool out of yourself. No one's ever going to accept you. Um, You're always going to be that outcast, that outsider. Um, and then it was like slowly but surely, they saw that I was becoming part of a different community, and their minds changed and their minds shifted, and they saw how I now have so many black friends that literally mark one of the people that I'm interviewing is not only a friend, he's an inspiration to me, a mentor. But you know, I really feel so lucky to have this opportunity, and through that they saw like, oh, maybe she's not some nuts case um, she actually this can work, and a lot of my friends um, in the beginning of this year with the protests, they started coming um, and joining me, and my parents are so so proud even though they probably could have never imagined that their child goes this direction they always tell me how proud I am even though sometimes they scared um my community is proud of me and I think it just has been amazing to see how people have you know in the beginning they were like shocked what is she doing and now they're so proud and so many people have been asking me how do i get involved how do i change um i'll go to literally kosher restaurants and people will ask me these questions um because people do want to change um i don't think people like to hate people want to love
0: sure i can accept that i can accept that but are people prepared then (laughs) To lose, if you like, their vantage points, their privileges, what where they are means and what they want to achieve or where they need to go in the line of change, it means losing. Are people prepared, if you like, for that journey of discomfort? I'm thinking of your Bram Fishers. I'm thinking of your Bayers, Nordeers, your Helen Susman, your Ruth First, your Arthur Cheskalson. And even people saying they want to join because you are becoming this infectious soul. It reminds me of Albie Sachs and your Peter Haynes, who we will be talking about later and to later on. Do you get the sense that this change is just a cognitive change that people make mental notes of? Or are they putting the necessary apparatus in place to walk a similar journey that you are making? In other words, are they identifying with you in private or are they identifying with you in public and in action?
1: I think uh, it takes time. I think um, what I've seen is there's been a few... First, in the beginning, it was only people would say stuff, like, I'm so proud of you, so proud of you. And then I would often get a bit irritated, be like, okay, I don't want to hear anymore that you're proud of me. Like, come with me to the protest, you know. Come involve yourself, change your life. And it's been a slow process, it's been two years, but slowly but surely I actually have seen people be on the ground with me. And that's been incredible. Um to see that it's not actually just sweet talk that, that some people actually want to do stuff. Uh this past protests, like there were a lot of a few I'd say like more than normal, white people in the protests, and I think what's how that white people need to understand is just because it's not my problem doesn't mean I have I can dismiss myself of the obligation to fight for it. Um, I know that there's a lot of people in in the in the political community that have a problem with me at the protests that um, are very very hostile and have said that you don't have a right to be at this protest because you white.
0: Are these fellow and protesters?
1: These are fellow comrades. Um, you know, I've gotten a lot of backlash and it hasn't been an easy thing. And I think maybe sometimes, you know, I would only, to be honest, tell strong people to go down this journey because now I'm in an amazing place. But it took some time. Let's it took some time to get
0: there. I appreciate that, Gabby. Let's take a call. In fact, the fact that you are saying that some people question your Rights to Toy Toy, as it were, reminds me of a book writ, written by Peter Mulder, former leader of the Fred's Front Fluss, Can Afrikaners Toy Toy. Good evening, calling us from Port Elizabeth.
2: <laughs>
0: Indeed, been a <laughs> while.
2: Right. Um, to your guest, I wanted to comment on this issue of mine. For South Africa to succeed, I just see two values, if I can call them, rule of law and meritocracy. That's all. Now, also, what does she think about the scenario? Assuming that at least half of the whites in this country were to share the same values as she does, right? With all the trappings of fear, fear, of being I suppose, depending what which era she was in, she would have been called a careful and so forth. Critical mess, Will, does she think this can be a game changer in South Africa? If a critical mess of her own self, in other words, I expect half of the whites to, be, to have the, the same values that she does. Doesn't she think that we would achieve a great deal a big changer for our 27 years of democracy in about 20 years, 30 years' time, we should have been far if most whites can be part and parcel of the discourse. As, long as though, thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Babu I think I'm going to leave it there from interaction from outside. Of course, the conversation can be picked up in the next segment. Perhaps, Gabby, you want to respond to that before we take an ad break and then we let you take over?
1: I think that is the, the thing that we need to go forward, is people need to either decide, make the decision, either I'm staying here because I want to help and I want to change, and not because I want my big house and domestic work and all my privileges, or they must leave. Um, and I think it, it, it's going to have to be, you know, it now is going to be the time, the determining factor of, is this country going to survive or not? And in order to survive, we need engagement. We need dialogue. We need to bring back, go sit at the table and have hard conversations. And understand that in those hard conversations, there are going to be things that we're going to lose. You know, I often lost my dignity in how people treated me and how people screamed at me at protests. Um, you know, I, I even got suspended this year. And that's something so small, the suspension, but the attacks that I had on my, as a person, you know, with regards to being white, with regards to being privileged, with regards to being a Jew, I've never been treated like that in my entire life. But I believed in the cause that I was fighting for and I was willing to put my dignity aside for the greater collective. And I pushed through. And I know that there will be more attacks in in the future. I'm so privileged and grateful to God and grateful for the comrades that stood by me and that welcomed me into this space. But it is hard and people must not think that black people and white people are just going to be able to coexist like this. And we all know that there's so much in our minds, in our hearts that is not being said and is not being done. So my hope for this country is that we go on to the next 27 years and we start realizing that something needs to change. And it's not just
0: the Constitution. Wise words from the young Miss Gabby Faber, Jewish activist and ANC deployee at the WITS SRC 2021 as a legal officer. She's on a journey to first self-discovery, but more than that, she's on a journey of working within and building the African project. After this ad break, Gabby will immediately take over as she engages the guest of her choice in matters... Well, stay tuned, and you'll hear all about it after this.
3: on SAFM.
1: Um, we are back SAFM on um, Tuesday tonight, with me being Gabriela Nakhmevava, a South African Jewish activist, an ANC employee in the SRC. Um, at Wits University and today I am going to be participating in Tuesday's Takeover for South African FM and I am going to be interviewing one of my great, great friends, mentors, colleagues um, and a, a person who really inspires me and has gotten me through so many difficult times in my life um, and a person who I really think that if we had more people mm-hmm. like him in this world, the world would be better and South African would be better. And um, this is Mark companion, a youth minister, activist, writer, poet, mentor, feminist ally and proponent of pan-Africanism. He's the founder of the the founder and chair of Obama leadership, which was established in twenty fourteen to build transformi- transformative caring societies that will value the lives of all those who live it. Obama Leadership has mentored and graduated 180 young leaders through its Obama African Leadership course, a course which aims to address one of Africa's most prevalent and daunting problems, a deficit of effective, ethical, visionary, and accountable leaders. My company is amongst the top four winners of the Nelson Mandela Institute of Development Mental Studies and African Youth Network Movement, COVID, in my city comparative um mark thank you so much for joining us tonight really appreciate it
4: it's a pleasure to be here gabby i'm happy to 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 be here with you and um i must say for for the listeners a disclaimer i'm in no way as amazing as a gabby says i am but thank you so much for the kind words (laughs)
1: um so mark just um going on the first question i think it's always important in an interview for you to the the listeners to be able to understand where you come from where you grew up because often people see leaders and they think oh my god that person is absolutely extraordinary he's achieved so much i would never be able to do such things and i think it's so important for for young people and ordinary people to realize that it takes an ordinary person to make themselves extraordinary No one starts off extraordinary. It's a progress, it's hard work, and it's time and it's effort. And that's something that you have done. So please bring to our listeners where you come from, what you've done, a little bit of background about who you are.
4: Well, if um, ever there was such a thing as the South African dream, I think that uh, my family would be a testament towards that. And I say that against the backdrop of, youth unemployment that's at 75% um, in the midst of a pandemic that is crippling our nation's economy and on the backdrop of austerity that makes life difficult for the majority of South Africans. Um, My life very much is a testament perhaps to the hopes and the aspirations of this nation. So I have the privilege of being the son of an exiled uh, freedom fighter. My father was a uh, UDPS combatant, which was the liberation movement in the DRC. And he was exiled and came here to South Africa in uh, 1993, if I'm not mistaken. And subsequently I was born here a few years later. Um, I've resided in Pretoria for the majority of my life. And because of this privilege of being a son of one nation, born and raised, and having deep, deep connections to another, Pan-Africanism came naturally. And then came the desire to see myself in the reality around me. It uh, was without a doubt that when I went to libraries, when I engaged in material, it was almost as if I did not exist, as if my people did not exist, as if Africa was not on the map or that African people did not exist pre-colonial the era. And that passion then brought me to African activism and in high school I joined the organization of African youth and by genuine chance really no no merit whatsoever I ended up being the spokesperson for the organization in South Africa and later on got promoted to lead it on a continental level and then this saw me opening up to an entirely different world a world where you engage with multilateral organizations where you engage across borders where you engage across language And I began to see the real price that people pay of activism in Africa. And even here in South Africa, we often forget that um, our constitution grants us civil liberties that are luxuries, dreams in other countries. We are quite literally living in what other countries dream of. And after reaching the summit uh, um, of leading the largest youth organization on the continent, I came back uh, to what I consider home here in South Africa, and my father suggested Why don't you share some of your lessons with um, the community you grew up in? And that's how Ubuma was formed. And Ubuma, of course, being made up of two words, Ubuntu and Vuma. And that um, really indicates the center of our way of leading, which is fundamentally based on Ubuntu and human dignity and the reality that regardless of where a person comes from, regardless of whether they're a white Jewish activist like yourself or a pan-African activist like myself being black, We're able to work together because we're both human and we both uh, have human dignity. And that touches on some spiritual truth that I hold dear as a a Bantu person and as a Christian person as well. And I think we'll get into some of that later. So I hope I haven't dragged it out too much, Gabby
1: no not at all i think it's it's something that everyone needs to hear um because it's something that inspires me and i hope will inspire the listeners uh just to remind all our listeners that we would love your engagement and your questions um so the lines are open call 011 or WhatsApp a voice note um to 0614104107 um And I think going on to my next question with Mark is I know that you have done so much in the field of gender-based violence and you call yourself a feminist ally. And I think one of the biggest issues which I discussed previously when I was being um, interviewed was there's often no um, connection between two enemies. Um, You know, you have the black and white people and in order for the black people to, to progress or white people to progress, no one wants to talk to each other. And we need even as much hatred or anger or frustration or discontent there is between two groups, we have to come together and find solutions. And I think that's so important when discussing feminism and discussing gender-based violence, because we can't keep having these conferences filled with women in the hall. We need men to participate so that we can bring the change. And I want to ask for you, what does it mean on a practical level to be a feminist ally and what advice can you give to all the men out there, to all the sons out there, to all the mothers that are bringing up boys and men as children, what advice can you give them so that we can stop this pandemic of gender-based violence in our country?
4: Well, Gabby, I think uh, some of the work to that answer has been given before. I think your host um, and yourself speaking along racial lines made reference to some of the white allies that existed in the black struggle before you. And I think before speaking to a feminist ally, we must understand what an ally is in general. So when you are an ally to a struggle, you are not a leader in the struggle. You are not necessarily the authenticated voice of the people in the struggle, but you come to use the privilege you have, the access you have, and the proximity you have to leverage your personal influence in the direction of that struggle, and you allow yourself to be led. Now you spoke about the context of gender-based violence in South Africa, and it very much is adversarial, as you said, male versus female, man versus woman. And unfortunately for me, that is rooted in a colonial fashion of problem solving. As a matter of fact, and you would be familiar with this as we've discussed this, when you look at customary law in the Bantu context, even in the cases of crimes, we try to administer justice, in order to keep the community together. And at the center of um, how we organized communities in the African sense was a dimension of complementarity where different groups and different people would complement each other and work together. On a practical level, um, this is the inspiration behind the imbizo. The majority of people who perpetrate acts of gender-based violence are males. Um, as you said, those of us who are familiar with going to conferences and seminars, you're seeing the same people in the room came to a point where we realized the men that we need to be speaking to are not in the room. So if we're not going to get them into the room, then perhaps we should take the room to them. And that's how we went to the Shabins. That's how we went to um, the universities. That's how we've gone to sporting engagements. That's how we've gone to rural community. So on a practical level, what would I say to each and every person is that the revolution starts at home. I think the first thing we need to understand in our fight against gender-based violence is the limitation of the law. And that is that the law only comes into effect after the fact. The law will only be retroactive. It does not actually proactively stop anyone from carrying out an incredibly egregious crime. So it is required for us to look at the culture and the values we instill in young men. And this is why, for me, the most practical piece of advice I can give is that the battle against gender-based violence starts at home. And it's in the home that we need to educate young men on how to behave, young women on uh, how to protect themselves and also what kind of behavior is unacceptable. And I think COVID-19 has taught us that people aren't getting abused or raped in the streets, they're getting hurt at home. And therefore the fight, the first frontier, is in the home.
1: Exactly. Thank you so much. And I think something that both of us have in common is that we understand that I have my privilege of being white. you have your privilege of being male and but something that we're even more privileged of is that we have the, the we have been given spaces to use that privilege to benefit those that don't have that same privilege. Um, and I think it, it's extremely remarkable the work that you've done to or to highlight to all these men that, they have the ability to change. They don't need to go into the direction and into the trap of of patriarchy. Um, and so, I just want to also call out that we can. We have Twitter handles: South African FM Radio, and um, Songezo is still the host of this program, South African FM. Viewpoint. We are just now at Hashtag Tuesday's Takeover, um, where I'm sitting with Mark and companion and me, Gabriella Farber, who are talking about youth and our personal experiences and the wisdoms that we have gotten from these experiences. Uh, my other question is, I know that you have dealt a lot with mental health, um, and this is something that is really plaguing our, our youth and it's getting worse and worse and there are a lot of stigmas against this and i think a way that you know speaking about in in my previous interview about um the african projects there has been often problems that we also need the traditional healers to come into the perspective of mental health Um, because our country is not going to accept just taking you know, the next psychiatric pull and going into hospitals and going to see a therapist. We need joint efforts um, when it comes to mental health of training families, homes, traditional healers, and training the doctors to make sure that they realize they live in a South African context. Mark, what has your experience been with youth struggles um, when it comes to mental health? And what guiding advice can you give to all those listeners out there? who are struggling.
4: I think um, it's important that you, you mentioned as well um, the African uh, project and the desire to return to the authentic version of what Africa was um, in a pre-colonial era. So what we must um, understand and engage with when dealing with mental health is to realize that much of the colonial thought um, imposed upon Africa is fundamentally based on materialism. And what that means is that the entire universe, all of existence, comes down to things that are atoms and quarks. Quarks are the things that make up atoms. So things that we can touch, see, feel, or smell, that's what's real. And anything that's invisible does not exist. And hence, even when looking at a human being, we engage humans from a purely material lens. In other words, looking at the body of a human being. If you're sick, if you have a flu, that's real. But if it's something in your soul, something in your spirit, then it doesn't exist. So when it comes to us dealing with human beings and human problems, we have to look at it from a holistically African perspective. In other words, recognizing that human beings are triune—that we have bodies, we have souls, and we have spirits—and the same way that your body can be sick and in need of healing, that can be the case with your mind. That can be the case with your spirit as well. And oftentimes, sickness and and affliction is interconnected. In other words, you have a a physical thing that's an expression of a mental thing and a mental thing that's an expression of a spiritual thing. So in order for us to effectively deal with mental health in a sustainable way, we must go back to what we call indigenous wisdom. In other words, how did our people deal with the different challenges we had in a time before the material age? So on a practical level, what I would say is that the same way we exercise every day, engaging our souls every day, and engaging our spirit every day, whether through that's through God or any other means that you, you might use, but making sure that you're healthy and that every part of your human being is healthy, not just the aspects that are physically or corporately tangible.
1: Um, thank you so much, Mark. We actually have a voice note which has just come in. Um, SAFM, if you could please kindly play that voice note for us.
3: Good evening, evening, Gabrielle and your your guest. guest. I just want to find out from both of you, you, how far far does the rights for men, men men who have children that are born out of wedlock, impact impact on the gender-based violence? violence. Because Because typically typically in South South Africa, what happens is that men have lesser rights over their children. Whenever you go to court or to the police or to the social worker, because the child was born out of wedlock, your doors are, the doors are shut. You are, you are not you even are not told, told of your, your rights and and, and 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 your responsibilities. You are being chased away as, as being someone who has only who only has to provide for the child in terms of monetary support, but in terms of visitation rights and other rights that one should address as a father. Your, our rights as men are infringed. Thank you very much. This is anonymous in case it uh,
4: Uh, Gabby, I think that the question from Anonymous is incredibly relevant. For those who didn't gauge his question, he was saying that there is a sentiment or at least a lived experience from certain men who have children born out of wedlock that um, they do not enjoy the same rights as as fathers who have children in marriage and that this also affects uh, gender-based violence. So I think what is clear and what is beyond debate is that fatherlessness in our country affects many things gender-based violence included. Historically, we must appreciate that the rates of fatherlessness in South Africa are very different from other African countries, particularly because apartheid intentionally sought to break down the back Black nuclear family. And this is where I think his question is particularly relevant. We have to ask ourselves, when we construct the law, when we're constructing our legal system, how intentional are we about restoring the Black families? So there is there was, there was question in terms of what are the rights enjoyed by fathers who have children out of wedlock. I think the case SVKDI is an important case in terms of family law, and there are methods in which a, ch- a father can gain um, rights to his child. But nevertheless, these are oftentimes misunderstood and out of access for the ordinary person on the street. So we find that many fathers who do wish to be are engaged in their children's lives, um, just are unable to from a legal perspective. But over the overwhelming amount is that, and we must be honest, many Black men uh, choose to shrink from the responsibilities of fatherhood for different reasons. And when we talk about restoring our society, not just GBV, but holistically, we must have both parents present in the household. And the research is conclusive on that. Our lived experiences are evident of that. So the most revolutionary thing. Gabby, that a man can be as one who often toy -toy toys on the street is not to be in the front lines of a picket line. But if you're going to be a husband, be a present one. If you're going to be a father, be a present one. That's how we transform this country.
1: Exactly. And just thank you so, so much, Mark, for joining us tonight. It really is always a privilege to share your words of inspiration as a youth pastor, as an activist, as a feminist ally. Um, you're a mentor to many of us in the political uh, community and environment, so thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we are now going on to news at 9 o'clock. Today was uh, Tuesday's um, uh, Tuesday's turnover at SAFM. Thank you very much
3: on the viewpoint
0: we are back we are live it is the viewpoint on south african fm as gabby does say it was rather cute The Tuesday takeover has come. It has gone. We're now finalizing the conversation with Gabby before we move on to the next guest, Peter Hain, who in about five or so minutes from now we will be talking to. There are a couple of questions that were directed for your attention there, Gabby. Perhaps what I should do is just read all of these, and perhaps you might just make a note and reply to all of them, ideally at once. First one, good evening, Butzonga. I absolutely agree with Gabriella. It is is it possible, Gabriella, to end, to abolish this term, Rainbow Nation, because it's not real. It's a national lie we've promoted as real, while it's just a dead dream. There's no Rainbow Nation while there's inequality. That in is, Second one, What is your take on expropriation of land without compensation? Lulu in Johannesburg asks, Afternoon, Budi. We wish this young lady good luck to carry the torch and light and to show that we are all human. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. So that's not a question. That's a remark that we most certainly do appreciate the Lulu. I'm just wondering which time zone you are living. It's well and truly evening here. Perhaps you are on the west of the meridian, Greenwich Meridian, that is. Rodney from Zumeri, final comment. Hi, Songezor. Does your guest classify herself as A, white, B, Hebrew? C, Jewish. D, Jewish Hebrew stroke Hebrew Jewish. Secondly, are Jewish stroke Hebrew organizations participating in any rural development initiatives? That's quite heavy there, Gabby, but I'm sure you will be equal to all of these engagements. Do you want to respond to the listeners before we say goodbye to them?
1: Yes. I would love to. Um, So I think with abolishing uh, the Rainbow Nation, I think it's an important thing to aspire to. But I think that there's things that need to come way before them, um, such as basic rights. Uh, The the beauty of the, the ideal of Rainbow Nation is that... the rainbow still has the different colors, but the different colors can come together. And I think that's what's important, is that we can't have this colorless society because then we'll lose our identity. We'll lose all the the Africanism, which we actually need in this country, all the different heritages, cultures, rules, customs. We will lose that. Um, But I think that this idea that we we are hiding behind the slogans from the Nelson Mandela's uh, administration. And we're hiding behind them because we know that they are not true. They are not our reality. We have not reached it yet and we are quite far from it, but we, no one wants to admit this. No one wants to admit and put in the hard work post the liberation. It's not just about a constitution. It's about human beings and those human beings doing the work, not just the government, not just the parliament. It's about every citizen every citizen acknowledging that yes, we want a rainbow nation, but that is something that we do not have. And we do not have that for many reasons, and one of them being our fault to not have hard conversations and to not be able to admit our wrongs and have dialogues with people who are different to us. When it comes to um, my identity, I think my identity is I'm first, I'm Jewish, I'm white, and I'm South African. And I'm an activist because I think all that my identity comes from my Jewish beliefs. And it's been my Jewish beliefs that have guided me and pushed me to do the work that I do to be an activist, to be a South African. And when it comes to white, I often was so embarrassed of the color of my skin. Um, It was something that I always wanted to avoid. I didn't want people to acknowledge that I was white. And then I was like, what idiot am I being if I can see that I'm white? And it's important for me to identify myself as a white and acknowledge what it comes with. It comes with a people of oppression. It comes with violence. It comes from a history of the apartheid regime. And it comes with privilege. It comes with the kind of privilege that I know that there will be food on my table. And I must not deny my privilege because when I deny my privilege, I deny someone's lack of access to those same privileges. So I think my closing remarks is, yes, we do need land approach land, land appropriation without compensation. Because in order for this country to gain, some people might have to lose. And it's uncomfortable and it's hard. And there will be losses on both sides. It is inevitable. I'll ask but you when this final lose, question. We I'll, can also gain.
0: I'll ask yes. you this final question, Gabby, and I absolutely am gobsmacked. I'm awe-inspired. I am in many respects rejuvenated and revived by your voice, the strength of it, your activism and the genuineness by which you deliver. Do you honestly think you would have as positive a response or as much an impact or would be as well received with everything that you think, say and do if you're an African woman?
1: Definitely not. Very well. And I, I think, you know, this is why I say it's so important to acknowledge colour. Um, we can't be see, saying we're all equal because the reality is we're not. Can't be saying we we don't belong to colour because it's our colour in this country that is unfortunately creating these issues. But we don't even want to acknowledge the issues, never mind the roots. And so we need to understand. And this is what I'm saying of. I have to use and all those white people out there or because even there are black people that are privileged, you know, a black person who lives in a house is more privileged than someone who lives in a shack. You know, there are going to be always people that are more privileged than others. And it's about using my privilege and using your privilege to benefit and to help those people who do not have that same privilege. So while I say that I'm privileged and I, I, uh, I understand that this privilege comes from years and years of colonization and apartheid and years of oppression. I have the duty, and this is where I get from Judaism, my inspiration, that Judaism tells me that I have the duty to use my privilege for the benefit of others. Fantastic. Thank you so much for this time and this conversation. It's been an absolute <laughs> privilege to be on here with you guys tonight, to engage in these topics and hopefully in the future we can do this more often and bring the voice of the youth back to our country.
0: No pun intended in your deliberate use of the word privilege there, Gabby. I for that, <laughs> but much appreciated. Thank you very much for your time. Come back anytime here on SAFM. Gabriella Nahama Afaba. Thank you so much for your time, your voice experiences and perspectives. After the break, quite rarely in line with the thesis of the latter part of this conversation, a conversation with the more experienced South African born in Nairobi settled
4: in the United Kingdom,